17-year-old Angela Freeman was last seen on September 10, 1993, here at the old Pizza Hut in Petal. This was the last place that we ever, that anybody ever saw her alive. 17 years old, five months pregnant. Her bloodstained car was just north of Perry County's Monette Bridge. There's a possibility she might be in the river, so we're checking the river right now with the dogs. Rescue workers are searching the river with dogs, and they are also searching the wooded area here. She was, um, had come in from work, and she gave me $80 to pay on her car that we found abandoned out here in Perry County. At this point, we really don't know any more than we did before until we can find her. We're still hoping that it's just not real, you know, that, that she's going to call and say she was, maybe she was abducted and will get away or something, but, uh, it just really doesn't look good at all. And we're working hard every day. We want this case solved. Vicki Bryant was pouring coffee early Friday morning during the breakfast rush at Crossroad Grocery in Sunrise, a small community on the southeast side of Petal, when she looked up to see her niece Angela's former boyfriend headed toward the counter. Knowing he was usually the closing manager at Pizza Hut on the other side of town, she was surprised to see him up with the sun that day. That day was September 10th, 1993. Even though Vicki had divorced Roger Freeman, their children were first cousins to Roger's sister Deborah's children, Angela and Nicholas, and it was a small town, so she stayed close with the family. We met during lunch in July at Topher's Grill on Hardy Street. Ironically, the restaurant that used to be the Crystal's restaurant, where Angela Freeman worked at the time of her disappearance. It was crowded with diners, so please forgive the quality of the audio. Okay. Well, I was working at a place out in Sunrise, outside of Petal, and we served breakfast. So, um, of course, I was in there that morning fixing breakfast, and Stephen came in. It was like 6.30 in the morning, which was very odd to see him in there that early, especially considering he worked at Pizza Hut till 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, but he made, and I, I remember, the only reason I remembered him being there is because it struck me as so odd because he made sure that I saw him. He came over and he sat down where I was working and he, you know, just struck up a, a, just a generic conversation, you know. And, but what made that odd is that he didn't order anything. He didn't buy anything. And then I didn't know anything was going on with Angel at that time. So I was like, that's, that's strange. Stephen wasn't typically friendly and talkative, but on this morning... Between 6.30 and 7 a.m., Vicki remembered, he went out of his way to speak to her, even though he ordered nothing to eat. She thought it odd, but let it pass. She was busy dishing out breakfast to her morning regulars. Days later, however, Vicki said she thought it even odder when a pedal police officer contacted her to verify Stephen's whereabouts that morning. I can't even remember the officer's name that contacted me because Stephen had said, well, you can call Vicki and ask her. She saw me. Well, yeah, I did see you, and it, it kind of odd that you were up there that early. 
when you normally didn't come in here often at all. See, I had known Stephen um, when he was a, a small child. We lived, my parents lived right next door to them in a trailer park. And so I knew Stephen and his sister since they were small children. You are listening to the fourth episode of Telling Lives, a reported podcast series covering old stories in a true way. I'm your host, Elizabeth Christian. In this episode, we will tell you about the initial investigation into Angela Freeman's disappearance, what law enforcement did and didn't do, and how family, friends, and the community reacted and responded to another teenage girl going missing in South Mississippi, the second in less than a month's time. As I was burying my paternal grandfather in April 1993, Angela Freeman was meeting her father for the first time. I can go back to my diaries I have kept since I was 10, except for these harshest of memories. Even though writing has gifted me with sanity at times when I wanted to scream more than I wanted to share, I still find it odd that growing up, It was the most turbulent times that I chose to give my secret journal the silent treatment. And I wonder, was Angela the same? Deborah told me her daughter always kept her secrets locked up in a journal she kept in her purse. Those closest to her knew of this habit, sometimes wondering what might be included about themselves. One of the items never recovered after Angela went missing was her diary. During the last several months, I've conjured up scenarios of my own making about what may have happened to that diary and what pieces of Angela's puzzling disappearance would instantly fall into place if it were found. Did she know what was coming or would her journal reveal just normal daily routines of an expectant teenage mom? Was she scared as several of her friends have led me to believe or were these simply suppositions based on her vanishing? Was the disappearance or murder planned, an accident? So many questions remain, and Angela's written account of her last few months lost with her and her unborn child. It was Friday afternoon before Deborah knew that her daughter's car was at the Monted Bridge. She wasn't expecting to see Angela until later Friday or before her work shift Saturday. After her brother Randy called, Deborah called around looking for her daughter. Neighborhood friend Melissa Austin McSwain said Deborah called her looking for Angela. I remember her mother calling me asking me who her friends were, and she said she felt really bad that she didn't know any of her friends. Deborah didn't immediately call the police. Instead, she called the only other person she knew who might know where Angela was. She called the Petal Pizza Hut to talk to Stephen Lindsay. Okay, when talking about Friday, when I came in, I called, my brother calls me, tells me the car, and I'm thinking, well, maybe she left it down there and gave it run, you know, because it's a used car. You don't think anything's wrong. So then I went and called uh, the guy at the Pizza Hut. So I called him and I said, 
I got him on the phone and I said, you seen Angela? Uh, found her car, so, you know, and uh, I'm really worried, you know. No, I hadn't seen her. Click. Deborah said she was shocked by his abruptness. Becoming increasingly worried, she called the Perry County Sheriff's Department. So then I called and I called Perry County and I said, look, we're coming down to y'all's area. My daughter's car is there. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if there's something wrong or if she left it or, but would y'all meet us down there, please? We lived in Petal. It took us at least 30 minutes okay. to get out there, okay? It was in summer, it was hot. Mm -hmm. We got down there. We got on his tailgate and sat there and waited. You know, we got there and they wasn't even there. It don't take them but maybe 10 minutes to get there. I had, a, I had one of them phones in my car. And they said, I said, I've been down here for 30 minutes. We called y'all an hour ago. And I said, y'all still not here. Are y'all coming? Oh, yeah, we'll be there in just a second. Before we get into the details of the initial investigation, it's important to note that several different departments were called into work on the case. So it's going to get a little muddled determining who was responsible for some of the decisions that were made, especially in the early days after the discovery of the car and determining if, in fact, the car was actually a crime scene. So stick with me. The departments involved included Perry and Forest County Sheriff's Departments and the City of Petal Police Department and Hattiesburg Police Department. Other agencies became involved to a lesser extent to assist or provide auxiliary support. Angela's Honda Accord was found abandoned in Perry County, but she was a resident of Petal, which is located in Forest County. The investigators had a lack of resources in Perry County, so they borrowed from Forest County and Hattiesburg's more abundant resources. These elements created a case that was multi-jurisdictional and therefore more confusing and prone to mix-ups. Just a reminder, Angela's car was discovered on the Monad Bridge by her uncle, Randy Freeman, in the early hours of Friday morning, September 10, 1993. After he visited his girlfriend, Jennifer Runnels, who is now his wife, in New Augusta, less than a mile from the Monad Bridge. When he drove back across the bridge a couple of hours later, he found that her car was still there. Another person, whom Randy said was a local game warden, had also stopped when he saw the car about six in the morning. Randy stopped and felt the hood to see if it was still warm. Finding it cold, he said he decided to call Deborah. He wasn't able to get a hold of her at work, so he waited until the afternoon, at which time he called Nicholas because he knew he'd be out of school. Nicholas told his mom about Randy trying to call her, and later that afternoon, Randy called her back. Becky Runnels still lives in the home where Randy visited that morning when he was dating her daughter, Jennifer. She remembers that afternoon. It was late afternoon. The sheriff came out here, and then we went to the sheriff's office because they had the question and all them and everything. I know Jennifer had to go to Pedal. They questioned her at the Pedal Police Department, too, and, and they questioned her and Randy both down here. Perry County officials were convinced Angela had just run off, but Deborah knew her daughter wouldn't have left an uncashed $223.19 paycheck. Even if she were to run off, 
which the family knew wasn't the case regardless. But someone wanting to run off wouldn't leave her car, and add to that, drive it to a remote location to leave it, and leave the money needed to get away behind. It didn't add up. Remember, Deborah was instructed to drive the car home, and if Angela never reappeared, call the sheriff's department again, and they would send over investigators to inspect the car. The car was a standard. Deborah said she was given a handkerchief to prevent disturbing evidence. Rusty Keys, who was in charge of the current investigation, was a new police officer at the time and not involved in the initial case. He said it doesn't do any good to look back at what wasn't done because it doesn't help move toward a solution. They made a decision, okay? Could they look at the car? Yes. Could they have done more follow-up? Yes. But they didn't. And, and, it, it, and that don't take nothing away from them or say they conspired. Um, there's sheriffs that have been through Perry County since this case that would want this case solved for them politically, okay? Would help. None of them has ever, you know, I mean, they want it solved, but what sheriff wouldn't want this case solved to say we solved it, you know, right. of course. So there's never been a conspiracy to not solve it. Were mistakes made? Of course. Um, but you can't change that. You can't judge them now. I mean, you can look at cases any detectives work. I don't care if it's FBI behavioral science unit. Right. You're going to make mistakes. There was evidence found at the scene that, that showed Angela was there. Okay? There was some evidence that I wish I still had. Keith said this notion of one puddle of fluid isn't entirely accurate. Instead, he notes that there were two, one being transmission fluid and the other blood, making Herring's mix-up more plausible. You know, there's this, always been this thing about this transmission fluid, and there was blood. Deborah's brother, Roger Freeman, was working at the Hattiesburg Laurel Regional Airport that afternoon, but headed straight to the site when he got word. Deborah called me. I left work. I my relief got there, and I went straight out there. And I collected some of the substance that was on the ground that the deputy from Perry County said was transmission fluid. I knew when I looked at it, it was transmission fluid. Several of us working on this podcast went out to the side of the Monted Bridge to get a feel for how remote it is and to knock on doors looking for anyone who may have lived back there in 1993. Derek Weatherford lives adjacent to the bridge site just a few hundred yards away, and owned the property back then. There wasn't nobody down here at that time. Now, I think they found, uh, I believe they found her car right there. The law was all down here, but there wasn't nothing here at that time. It was just woods. And, uh, yeah, I heard there was a camp. There was no camp here. I, no. I've got the only one. I don't know if this one right here was there or not. Okay. I I'll can't go. remember if this one over here was there. I mean, this one was... How long have you been here? I've been here... 12 years. Oh, okay. We've owned it for, we've owned this right here for about 30 years. I don't, I don't think there was nobody down here. I believe the way I was told, I wasn't down here. I was working off, I think my wife and her daddy come down here when all of us 
was all going on because we did own it then. And uh, we did own this spot here. Do you know if the law enforcement searched your property? I'm sure, I'm sure they did. The first few days at the bridge, Perry County Sheriff treated Angela's disappearance as anything but a crime. Sheriff Carlos Herring refused to use Forest County cadaver dogs or drag the river. But such an act makes the likelihood of finding Angela slimmer with each passing hour. I'll discuss this more in Episode 7. On Saturday, September 11th, someone from Crystal's restaurant called to tell Deborah that Angela had not reported to her work shift. And Deborah and her husband, Bill Stewart, called Perry County Sheriff to let them know. But anyway, it's that there, and that was on a Friday. On a Saturday is when pedal police got involved because she was a child under the age of 18 after a porter. They came to the house and, you know, asked me all kinds of questions, wanted to know pictures of her, wanted to some clothes or anything like that. I believe they went out there and they searched the wood area. And um, Sunday, I, I really don't know what took place. I, you know, I don't even know anything took place, to tell you the truth. Monday, uh, the, the guy that, uh, Stuart guy that I was married to, his daddy was, um, I went over, she said, Deborah, why don't you get uh, the dogs, or, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, he knew people like that. So I called, and I didn't know what to do. I, I was lost, okay? So I finally called a reporter, Diane Cobb. Mm-hmm. She works for Crime Stoppers now. Mm-hmm. And I said, Diane, I have a child that's been missing since Friday. And I said, I can't get assistance from Perry County to do anything. And I said, I, I'm lost. I, I don't know what to do. And I hadn't heard anything from my child since mm-hmm. Wednesday. So after I got called her, it wasn't very long after that that Forest County was bringing them dogs down there. They took the dogs on the other side, not the side that Angela's vehicle was on, other side. And them, they come across that bridge. They went straight to that puddle that was oh, wow. been there since Friday. Lucky, my brother had started, he was uh, just starting out the police divorce, and he was working at the um, airport at the time. He took a sample of that stuff. It was on a Saturday, I believe, and he ended up keeping it and giving it to the police anyway. But anyway, but until then, the dogs come across there and they were sniffing it. And I was standing right there, right when you go over the bridge, and, the, and I said, what is it? You know, I was talking to the lady and she said, she said, I don't know what that is. We got to get a sample of it. And I said, oh, they told me it was transmission fluid from a log truck Friday. I said, it's, it should be fine. She said, no, ma'am. That's what she said, no, ma'am. The canine officer told her the dogs were trained to sense human or animal blood. This was Monday, four days after Herring's refusal. Roger Freeman, Angela's uncle, who had at the time recently finished the police academy, called the attorney general's office and asked if they could take over the investigation because of personal relationships that he thought might be conflicts of interest. Remember, this is a very small town where many people are related or close to people in positions of power, but the attorney general denied the request. 
I mean, I got to hand it to Billy when Angle first came up missing. He was wanting to send because at the time we had search and rescue, we had dogs, we had divers, we had everything as far as killing. Because I was working up there at the time too, but as reserve, when I was working at the airport. And he said, hey, whatever we need out there, we'll send right. it out there. But we got to get Carlos permission before we can go out there. That was the hard part. I was the one that actually called the Attorney General's office to ask the state to take over the investigation. About 30 minutes after I got off the phone with them Monday morning, my dispatcher, Butch, had for a county call to say, Carlos just called and said, bring everything out there. I called Sheriff McGee to see if he could recall whether or not Sheriff Herring refused allowing the dogs that Friday, but he said he did not remember that. Fortunately, it hadn't rained so potential evidence had not been compromised even further. The dogs went straight to the spot that the Freemans noticed on Friday, the supposed transmission fluid on the bridge. That same day, the dogs found a napkin with traces of makeup and Angela's DNA smeared on its fabric as if she had been crying. They also found Angela's shoes, one in tall grass and the other one on a campsite nearby. They also found a napkin. In the area they found it, it was on the bridge somewhere. But it was like she had been crying and you had wiped and your makeup, mm-hmm. but her scent was on that napkin. Um, then uh, they found um, her shoes. I'll, I'll always remember that when they were. We made the uh, picture of the year that. Um, Anyway, they're holding that shoe up, and me, I don't be trying to figure out if that's hers or not. And it was, she wore kits, you slip on. And I told them, yeah, so they, uh, they found that one, and they, the dogs found the other one. It was in grass about this high. It was like, I, when you go out there, um, before you went on the bridge, there was a, a camp. I guess the camp is still there, but it was on a private drive. And they found one of the shoes on the private drive, which wasn't too far from where the car was parked, okay? Mm-hmm. And the other shoe was, like, thrown. It had to be thrown. And I, I believe in my heart that, you know, if you were dragging somebody and their shoe slipped off and you were in a hurry, really hurry, mm-hmm. you know, and your you're, 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 you're thing's pumping and, you know, you know, you've done something. Right. And you seen that one shoe, but you didn't see the other one, but you took that one shoe and you threw it. Right. Okay, but you didn't see the other one. Uh, I believe that's what happened. Deborah remarked on the photograph of the officer holding up Angela's discovered shoe at the bridge site as the best news photo of the year in the Hattiesburg American, a tragic claim to fame. Well, basically, we started off with cadaver dogs. Uh, Carol Gardner, who I was good friends with, she had a cadaver dog named Polly. I remember the name or anything. But, uh, and she was associated with several more uh, dog handlers around in the area. And they got everybody out there. Uh, but, you know, you got to, you know, when you go to mobilize, you got to make sure all your equipment's ready to go. You got to make sure your dog's ready to go, get them all loaded, get all this stuff loaded up. And then everybody got to meet up and come up with a plan. So there were Forest County cadaver dogs? Perry County, does it have anything like that now? Not that time. I don't know if they do now or what, but they didn't at the time. But uh, it was, uh, they went out there, finally, you know, didn't have maybe just 
few hours with daylight left. On Mondays. On Mondays. And, of course, the area where the blood was, they went straight to that. Then the dogs, the scent will still be in the area, but it daggergate, you know. Freeman is Lieutenant for Criminal Investigations for the Wiggins, Mississippi Police Department now. And he told me he used to be a canine narcotics officer. My dog's nose is so sensitive that they can still, once you train them, say, this is the article we're looking for, they can go back and send it several days later. But if the article itself isn't present anymore, that's the problem. Yeah. Okay. But they can still tell where that article went. If that article touched a leaf or touched the ground, once one dog scents on that trail or that article, you bring another dog in to back that up. That way you have a conclusive proof that this dog's on the right track or if the, dog, if the other dog, second dog, does something totally different, then, okay, we may be on the wrong trail here. Okay. Uh, they all came back to that blood. There were two dogs that showed that Angela walked across the bridge. You know, then there was some detours off in the woods and came back out the road. Pedal police officer Tim Hartfield helped with the initial search and said he believed local law enforcement worked diligently because they didn't want to have another case like Lori Hill on their hands, according to a Hattiesburg American article. Lori Hill was the 17-year-old pregnant teen from Jones County who went missing in January and was found dead three weeks later. I was unsuccessful in trying to reach Hartfield for comments. Many family and friends came out to the bridge to support each other and to assist in the search of the wooded area surrounding the bridge. Deborah's sister, Donna Sanford, spent several days with her sister at the site. Monday, before the law, the officials really got serious about it and went out there and started checking it. Right. It was kind of like, okay, you know, well, we're going to bring dogs in. And, and, and it was like Monday afternoon, you know, at in September, and it gets dark early, so they weren't, they wasn't out there long whenever, you know, they got out there. It was fixing to get dark. Right. So, um, they, I do remember, you know, going out there, because they, my, my sister told me, she said, well, they're going to go out, they're going to be out there, and they're going to take some dogs out there. So, me and my husband, we went, and, um, I remember, you know, the first place that the dogs went to was there was a place in the road that it got dark, so they had to call it off. And they said, well, we'll come back tomorrow. Well, they came back the next day, which was Tuesday, and brought in more dogs from Slidell, Louisiana. It was a different set of dogs, and the first place that them dogs went to was the same place the other dogs went to. And, um, you know, so from that point on, it was a process out there. I mean, they were out there for several days looking and, you know, searching. The, they, they did do the river. I can't remember the time frame of when they actually did the river, but, you know, they went through the woods and, you know, found the shoe. And uh, but, but beyond that, I mean, that's really all we ever had. The next day. Police finally decided to fingerprint Angela's car, which, if you remember, 
had been driven back to Deborah's home Friday afternoon, the day it was discovered. Wednesday, they go and they fingerprint the car, and that's where they, they did find some blood and stuff on the back part of the car. So, but beyond that, we really have nothing. I mean, they found a shoe, they... They had the blood, and, and, and it was kind of a crazy thing because it was like at first he kept getting these conflicting stories. Well, we don't have enough blood to know what, to find out what it is. Well, I've never heard that. I, it didn't take much to determine is what I thought, but, you know, I don't know a lot about that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But it was just, I just felt that it was blotched from the very beginning <laughs> and that thought. I mean, they just thought she was gone off with some friends, she'll be back, you know, and we'll go from there. But, you know, to me, you've got, you know, she was still a child, I was just 17 child, but you've got a child, and you need to take that as serious as you would anything else, okay? Let's recap the timeline that appeared in the Hattiesburg American back in September of 93. On Monday, September 13th, Captain Butch Bailey a Forest County search and rescue called Deborah and told her he had heard about the abandoned car on Friday and offered the search dogs, but was refused by Sheriff Herring. Tuesday, September 14th, Pedal took more dogs to the bridge. They took them to the other far end of the bridge, far from the puddle. When the dogs were released, they too went straight to the puddle. A massive search ensued at that point. Divers came in and searched the Leaf River near where the dogs had found one of Angela's tennis shoes. Personnel from Camp Shelby brought in cranes and removed trees after divers found nothing. Back at Deborah and Bill's house that Monday, Deborah said Bill noticed some stains on Angela's car that might be blood. My husband, ex, ex-husband, was out there on the doing something with the car. I don't remember what it was, but... Anyway, we decided we need to call Pedal Police. There's something odd looking on there, stain or something. Mm-hmm. So the Pedal Police came over and they did do the, you know, on the car and they found blood back on the hatchback. Pedal Police came and Angela's car was finally dusted for fingerprints and processed for evidence after Bill saw something suspicious looking. He found what he thought was blood on that car, so he called Pedal. So Pedal, uh, when they found what they believed was blood on the car, which ended up being correct, they opened up a case, a missing person case, and Perry County jumped in the next day, and then Sunday and Monday is when the media really got involved, and the search began out there at Monted, and and Pedal and Lamar, Pedal and Perry County, Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, they were all kind of working it together, and they had some great leads. Uh, and, and they worked it for, as a group for about two or three years before it went really cold, okay? On Wednesday, September 15th, Pedal Police took dogs to Deborah's home and searched Angela's car that Perry County had sent home with her parents on Friday. Dogs went crazy on the hatchback of the car. Blood was on the back windshield, down into a taillight, and a single fingerprint was lifted but not matched to anyone. Also, oddly, two unspent bullets were found in Angela's ashtray, though her mother said she didn't own a gun. 
Now this was on here when we moved it, okay? And it was, you know, the it was a hatchback, so you have your glass here. Right. And right here on the tip of it, it was like a finger, like smeared. Uh huh. You know, and then it ran down into the tail light. Okay. So they took the tail light out of the car. They said. They checked the car, but they said it was too many things and the color of mm -hmm. it. And they used every excuse in the world, but they took the taillight. <laughs> uh, I don't know how long it was after that. I uh, kept the car, and, you know, they'd done all kinds of, said they'd checked it and all this stuff. But it, it sat there for, I think it was maybe two years. Um, I finally said, I called them and I asked them, there's anything y'all can do about this car. Can y'all take it somewhere? No, it's, you know, mm. So anyway, I ended up selling it, okay? And I sold it to this older gentleman. Anyway, he said, where's the tail light to this thing? I said, well, I said, that's in evidence. It had blood on it. Do you believe the pedal? He went down there and pedal police gave him the tail light and sold it. Angela's purse was never found, and neither were her keys. She kept a diary, the book in which she wrote about her friendships, relationships, hardships, and secrets, but it was never recovered. But she kept a diary, and her diary was in her purse. But um, she kept down what she did, who she talked to. Da -da -da. She hated me because she said, Mama, don't treat my diary. But anyway, <laughs> um, but I was never did find that. They also found they found one a bullet in her in her um, ashtray. Never did figure out that either because she didn't have a gun. Some of the evidence in the car would not be collected for years. We'll talk more about this in episode eight. With every piece of evidence, this teen runaway case was beginning to look less and less like one. On Wednesday, September 22nd, Richton Volunteer Fire Department searched the river with grappling poles. National Guard from Camp Shelby removed more old trees that had collected in the river near where search dogs had indicated someone might have entered the water, but no evidence turned up. Keyes said law enforcement knew very early in the investigation that Angela had come to harm and was most likely dead. And talking to the detectives and the officers that first worked it, I mean, Tommy Frederick and Jimmy Dale Smith, very qualified. Tommy's deceased now. Jimmy Dale's retired. Very qualified seasoned detectives. They knew she was dead. Um, but you have to go through the process. I mean, you, you know, Deborah had hope. When you say and, they knew she was dead, at what point? Immediately? When... When some things first start, when some stuff started coming in, it just fit. I mean, it just fit. And we didn't officially, it wasn't never officially called a homicide case till I took it. And I, that's what I classify it. It's a homicide case, just with no body. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, and it takes a lot to finally say, there's no like written policy that says, okay, this is when you say it's this. Right. It's just, you, you just know when to finally say, you know, she's not alive anymore. Yeah. To be very clear, 
this case, despite being 25 years old, is open and considered active. I do not have access to it. I do not know who the suspects are today. I will not be naming anyone a suspect. The only time you will hear a person was suspected of involvement is in his or her own words. Angela's ex-boyfriend, Larry Posey, told me he was considered a suspect for quite some time. He said he and Ruby were questioned several times over the years. Ruby and Larry were together 11 years and married eight and remained on good terms, according to Ruby. Larry said he thought race played a factor early on. At first I was, uh, but I was around, I think it was just the white people. It was the white people that didn't know me, you know. But as time went on, um, because I was basically, um, like the comments, the Facebook thing and all that, um, I think it was like one or two had mentioned me way back then. Mm-hmm. And, um, and someone else, some other white person had defended me. I, I forgot who it was. And, um, because I was about to comment on that, and someone came in, and, 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 and my wife had to, Ruby at the time had told me, just don't worry about it. So it was just like this other. Um, article that came in. I read the comments, and um, you know, the only person that mentioned the black guy was Lindsay's sister. Larry, come on now. I mean, I know Lindsay's your brother. I'm just hoping that you know he's. No, they didn't have anything to do with because you know. I mean, you trying to? Do, I mean, every. I mean, if that's your brother, your brother, but. You don't think about doing what's right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, of course I'm scared, but I know I didn't do anything. And I was like, man, if I'm a suspect, arrest me. I take a lot of check tests, you know. But when I said that, um, it was like they knew I was for real, you know, and it just kind of faded it off. Of course, it is common practice for investigators to consider and question those closest to a victim of a crime. Deborah said officials also questioned her and Bill. For a long time, they thought that uh, maybe she was under our swimming pool. Oh, you my know? goodness. Yeah, we poured a swimming pool back in, uh, I think they're 93. Casey prine said some of Angela's friends were also contacted by investigators for any information that might be of help. Whenever Angie came up missing, of course, I was I was investigated and they questioned me and stuff because they said they had heard like me and Angie was in this gang. And um, I guess that's maybe what some would call it. It was never like an official gang. It was just we were just kind of the bad broads of pedal high, but we were really very broken. Yeah. And um, Angie was very sweet. Like I said, you know, she just very, very sweet girl. Um. Then, of course, whenever I was 18, I started working up in Jackson in the, um, in the uh, exotic club industry. And um, I was actually working with the wife of the guy 
of, you know, that Angie got pregnant by. Um, so there was some more conversation at that time, like, you know, Angie had, after, I guess maybe she dropped out of school, I don't really know what happened there, um, but she started working, at one point she was working at Crystal's in Hattiesburg, right. and that's whenever she met the Posies. They investigated them like they were two, I think, um, people that were really investigated in that disappearance and and everything that's happened with Angie. And I think both of them had solid alibis or whatever. But um, um, Larry Posey was allegedly the daddy of the baby, I think. He's always tried to be very helpful, figure out what happened. Ruby, his wife. Um, when she and I discussed it, you know, of course she had, she had, she had a lot of ill feelings there Yeah. Uh, because she had befriended Angie and kind of taken her under her wing, you know, only then of course to discover that Angie and Larry, um, were fooling around and that Angie had gotten pregnant. And, um, so she had some really, I'm sure since then Ruby's let all that stuff go. Another friend who had worked at Burger King with Angela and asked not to be named agreed that the friendship between Angela and Ruby ended over Larry. There was a lot of speculation when she was pregnant by Larry or was not. And um, she didn't share with me who she thought um, the, the daddy of the baby was. Um, it's some people, how do I want to do some people say it out loud more than others. Other rumors shared with me, either the person would not go on record or could not be substantiated in any way, so I'm not including them here. Several friends did mention Angela feeling threatened in recent weeks before she went missing, and some would hear more stories as the years went by. While the investigators worked their leads, Angela's friends began remembering things and questioning things they heard, trying to figure out where Angela might be. Now we've covered the investigation timeline. Let's back up and talk about what went on in Angela's circle of friends in those first few days following her disappearance. Friday evening came September 10th. Kim Guy, one of Angela's best friends and co-worker at Crystal's, told me she and her then-husband, Lenny Wycheluski, had a double date planned that Friday night with Angela and Stephen. Kim hadn't seen her with Stephen much since she'd recently been dating Larry Posey, but Kim believed they must have started talking again since they were supposed to meet them that night. They never showed. Do you remember who? Do you remember what happened when they didn't show up? Uh, we just, she tried calling, but she would never be getting touch with. Angela was officially reported missing Monday. That is when the dogs were finally sent out to the bridge and Leaf River. When Kim returned to work and Angela did not, she had a bad feeling when police came to Crystal's asking questions of Angela's friends and co-workers. Kim questioned why her friend would have gone to the Monted Bridge. 
that our cops came up and started asking us all questions, and then we all went down to, to my bridge part. I mean, it is so creepy there. But I don't understand what, you know, Debbie's doing down there in my bridge. Kim still has trouble dwelling on the loss of her dear friend and the fact that law enforcement has never charged anyone in connection with it. I'm just a dumb old country girl that got married at a dumb young age that had a friend come up missing, and I just, I don't know what to do except for cry. I mean, and then, I mean, I don't even cry that much anymore because it's been a while. Cops never acted like they wanted to do Jack Diddley squat. I wouldn't want my family laying there. That just is an eerie place. Around Tuesday, Paula Kraft, the friend and co-worker from Crystal, who Angela was staying with, returned to her classes at Southern Miss, seemingly overwhelmed and exhausted from a weekend of worry about her roommate. A former classmate of Paula's, who asked us not to name her, remembers how distraught Paula was. We'll call her M. She and I had went to school together at PRC. I didn't know her outside of school, but we had classes together, a few of them. And then when we transferred to PRC, we were both in the med tech program. And she come in, and like I say, it's been a long time. I don't remember what day of the week or anything it was, but she come in all upset. And, and I stopped in the hall to ask her what was wrong because she was standing outside of one of our classroom doors, and she told me about her roommate. And I had heard something about it on the radio that morning on the way into work. And I heard something about it, but on the radio, they kind of made it sound like she was a runaway, so I didn't pay too much attention to it. But then when I got there, I started talking to Paula, and she was telling me about her roommate, you know, had come up missing, and she was like, I know her boyfriend did it because he'd been stalking her, or, or maybe it was her ex-boyfriend, I can't remember which one she said. And she's telling me all this stuff, and I was like, Where, where's, you know, where is this at? She said, you know, we live in Pedal, and she's my roommate. And I'm like, wait a minute, is that the girl they're talking about on the radio? And she's like, yeah. I said, oh. I said, I thought she was a runaway. She said, well, they, they're kind of, they thought at first maybe she was a runaway or something. Maybe her and that boy had ran away. But I guess they decided that wasn't what it was. We reached out to Paula in several ways, and she didn't respond to any of our requests for comment. To be clear... These are the memories of a classmate of Paula's who did not know Angela or any of the people associated with Angela. She was simply listening to and consoling a friend who was overwhelmed and trying to figure out what had happened to her friend. But she told me all this stuff about, you know, how he had stalked her and had abused her. I don't know in what way. She didn't ever expand on it. But And then she told me about yeah, you know, she was worried because she, the girl, Angela, had moved in with her or was moving in to try to, like, get a fresh start or something. Right. But she was scared that the guy had found out where she was had moved to because she said, I don't remember if it was the night the girl went missing, but sometime along in there, she was leaving her house or apartment. I'm not sure which one they had, but she was leaving and she thought she saw a guy sitting across the street in his vehicle. But when she turned her car around and the light shined on it, she didn't see anybody. But she said she knew she had seen somebody sitting in that vehicle whenever she walked out to her car. So she told me she thought that maybe he was watching their place. 
And she said something about, you know, he's already moved on. I don't understand why he just won't leave her alone. She didn't necessarily say he had another girlfriend, but, you know, it kind of alludes to the fact that maybe he did. M says Paula never referred to anyone by name. M said she excused herself to go to the restroom, and when she returned, she overheard Paula talking to another student who was present for the entire earlier conversation, too. The only thing she said or mentioned one time, there was me and another girl standing there, and I walked away for a second to do something. Maybe I went to the bathroom, and I came back, and she was telling that girl, the other girl, she said, and he said that nobody else was going to be raising his baby. Like, she told us all this stuff that day sitting in the hall, and I was I was just kind of standing there dumbfounded. I couldn't believe, you know, all this was going on. Two days passed, and Paula wasn't present for the next class period. The next week, M saw Paula at school and asked her if her roommate had returned. She left immediately after class. She didn't stay for any other classes. She came to that, whatever class that was we were going to that day. And then the next class period, which was two days later, because you have classes every other day, she didn't come. And then the next time she was there and I asked her, I went up to her, I was like, hey, I said, are you, have they found out anything about your roommate? Is everything okay? You know, and she was like, what are you talking about? I was like, you know, your roommate you're telling me about and, you know, her boyfriend and, yeah, just kind of, and she's like, no, they haven't found anything, but. I'm really not real sure what all you're talking about. Like, she was, and it caught me off guard. And the other girl that was there with us, because we were all in the med tech program together, and I can't remember that other girl's name either, because she ended up switching over to a nursing major. But she kind of was like, did she just tell you she didn't know what you were talking about? And I was like, yeah. And she said, well, didn't she just sit out in the hall the other day and tell us all this stuff? I said, yeah. I said, I said, maybe she just don't want to talk about it, and that's her way of just, you know, shutting us up. She did a complete about-face on me. I knew that. And I didn't ask her anything else about it when she said that. It, it kind of caught me off guard, so I was like, okay, well, if you need anything, just let me know. And I turned and walked off because, you know, I mean, I guess I just I didn't know what to say. I don't know if it was immediately or a week or two later, but she eventually either, I don't know if she failed out of the program or if she just, decided to quit or she transferred to another school. I don't know what happened, but she quit coming to class altogether. She didn't think about why until many years later. I don't know why it didn't dawn on me at the time it was happening. I guess I was just young and never been around anything like that. I, I almost wondered, you know, like if somebody hadn't scared her into just acting stupid about it. You know, acting like she didn't know anything or maybe she felt threatened. Maybe nobody actually said anything, but maybe she just felt threatened by the situation. M says a police officer did contact her back then and that she told him all this information and that Paula had dropped out of the program shortly after the disappearance. And when she told him that she didn't know Angela, that was the end of her involvement. Still, she thinks the two girls really thought they were about to have a fresh start. Instead, it was an abrupt ending. I do know she said that she was wanting to move there. She mentioned it two or three times. This was supposed to be a clean break for both of them. I guess maybe Paula was going through something, too. You know, they were going to get their apartment together. They were going to, you know, go start fresh and everything. 
you know, I guess they had great plans for the future. In the immediate aftermath, 14-year-old Nicholas turned to music. He began pouring his sorrow into song. One of his first songs is the theme song for this season of Telling Lives. Uh, anyway, I was really trying to write something for my sister. The uh, music for Angela came up with like six or eight months before I had the music. And I actually uh, heard a different, uh, trying to write a song to the music and it just never, I never satisfied with it. But that day I went to church. Uh, It was on March the 5th on a Sunday. The reason I know that they had a, a candlelight vigil on Tuesday night for murder victims and stuff like that at the Camper Park, and they wanted me to play a song. Uh, and I had a song, but I wasn't happy with it. It was the same word, the same music, but, or maybe it was a different song, but I just wasn't happy with it. So uh, when I got in church, I praised the Lord, give me something that I can. Definitely a journey. But, you know, I went through a lot of bitterness for, for several years. Uh, I've been through ups and downs with God. I can't say that I've been strong and faithful all the time. So I'll be honest with you. Nicholas has written many songs over the years, including two other tributes to his sister. His friend Jeremy Slade says he lost himself in his music to cope with the loss of his only sibling. Yeah, when she mentioned it, just, I get, it was one of those feelings where you just, you can't believe it. Like, you just know that she is somewhere. She's ran away from home because, uh, you know, whatever she's got. She hung out with people that might have ran from home. You know, when she went, it was just one of those things that it's, it was so surreal. You just did not, it's like this, this isn't happening. Nick um, was distraught, of course. Um, in the year or two following, he went very reclusive. We stopped playing together. He played by himself in his bedroom and just, he just didn't, didn't fell into music. I mean, that was his only, Jesus and music was his only out, was his only safety net, you know. Weeks turned into months, and eventually the news media stopped reporting continual updates. The tragic new normal for the Freeman family began to sink in. In a 1994 Hattiesburg American article, Petal Police Chief Wayne Murphy 
defended Perry County Sheriff Carlos Herring and said, quote, Whatever had happened to Angela had already happened. It wouldn't have changed what happened to her. It might have changed a lead or two, end quote. In that same article, Herring agreed that his office handled the case properly. After law enforcement exhausted all leads of which they were aware, the case began growing colder. At the year anniversary, local press and TV news revisited Angela's story and told the public how the family was faring with no answers to their suffering. Emotions ran high all over again, but no one could have predicted in just a few short months how explosive they would become. In the next episode of Telling Lives, we will go back out to the Monad Bridge after a couple of friends from Hattiesburg would go missing, and days later, their car would be discovered at the bridge, and they were nowhere in sight. Telling Lives is brought to you by reporter, writer, and host Elizabeth Christian, producer Brian Manuel, Associate Producer Jerry Clark, Reporter and Researcher Alina Noakes, Audio Editor Andrew Vance Miller, Audio Transcriptionist Lance Christian, Research Assistants Rhett Williams, Marilyn Barfoot, Trinity Baugh, and Abigail Jones, Photographers Abigail Jones and Grace Miller, Original Music by Nicholas Freeman. If you like this episode, subscribe to Telling Lives Podcast on your favorite podcast app. And if you have any information about the disappearance of Angela Freeman, contact us at tellinglivespod at gmail.com. There is a $12,000 reward for anyone with information leading to the arrest of the person responsible for Angela Freeman's disappearance. Contact Rusty Keys at the University of Southern Mississippi Police Department. Special thanks goes to Louisiana College for partial funding support for this project. Luke 8, 17.